Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Butlers podcast. I am Mike Watkins, and with me, as always, is my good friend and business partner, Matt Burke. Hello. And this week has been, this week or so, has been quite a wild ride for Bitcoin and the rest of the crypto market. In this episode, we will be covering the Luna UST Bitcoin situation, as well as some of the other news in the Bitcoin ecosystem. But first up is this crazy event which is the Luna UST situation. And I think this is really confusing for a lot of people. And I know that I have to go through a fair amount of study to really get my head around it. So in order to understand this, the first thing you need to understand is what is a stable coin? So Matt, can you explain to our listeners, what is a stable coin? Sure. Um, in general, a stable coin is a digital dollar. That's the easiest way to explain it. It's a way for um, for you to store value that is not going to be fluctuating like um, other cryptocurrencies. So if you are putting money onto a cryptocurrency exchange with the intention of trading different tokens or buying and selling, you know, Bitcoin, whatever it is, um, converting it into uh, a stable coin allows you to keep your dollars digital. So you don't have to move money on and off um, from, you know, fiat into crypto in order to be able to, to do those, uh, those transactions. So it's just a way to keep money on the sidelines that you know is not going to go up or down in value and to be able to enter into other assets uh, quickly. And there's a number of different kinds of, of stable coins. Um, the most the most secure ones are the fully reserved stable coins that are like uh, Gemini Dollar or Tether. That for every token that exists, there is one dollar in reserve that um, that backs that coin. So you know that if there's uh, if you are holding one do dollar worth of Gemini dollars, um, they've got a dollar in the bank somewhere to back that up. So you don't really have to worry as much about um, about the value changing. And those tend to stay uh, at a dollar really consistently. Um, next, you have cryptocurrency backed stable coins, which are uh, tokens that are worth a dollar that are backed by some other type of crypto asset. Um, and the the reserves that they have there are probably going to need to be a lot larger than a one-to-one -one because you have fluctuations in the value of the underlying reserve asset. Um, and then lastly, uh, algorithmic stable coins are what we had in the case of uh, UST. And that is a coin that is really managed by kind of smart contracts and, and computer code that manage the circulation and the supply of the uh of that stable coin and in the case of ust you had its uh kind of partner token called luna which is part of this terra network that allowed you to move between luna and ust at a dollar for dollar um basis meaning that you can always swap um one ust token for one dollar worth of luna so in theory, if the price of the UST were to go down, um, you could then ar have an arbitrage there where you could swap that out for Luna. It would actually destroy that 
stable coin and that would keep the price theoretically at a dollar. Um, so, so to reiterate some of the things you said, a stable coin is basically a, I'm going to call it a digital coin. That's always supposed to be worth $1 for the sake of this discussion. The price doesn't really go up. It doesn't really go down. It's supposed to be a dollar coin. It's just supposed to be a, a U.S. dollar represented in some kind of form of cryptocurrency, right? Yeah. And these stable coins pay, depending on the coin, different interest rates. In the case of UST, they were on something called the Anchor Protocol, and that paid a stunning 20% interest rate. That's right. right. And, and that 20%, um, and this is pertinent to what happened is that that 20% was almost like a teaser rate. Um, they put it out there and anchor was part of, it's part of the, the Terra ecosystem. And I believe that 70% of the UST that was in existence and until sometime last week was deposited into anchor um, where they were paying yield of 20% APY um, for all of the UST that you deposited into that uh, into that anchor platform, and what they were doing is turning around and loaning that out to other people and and paying interest on it, um, which you know it was a teaser rate, but anytime someone's offering you twenty percent for basically just making a deposit at a bank, uh, it does raise some questions immediately, um, at least in my mind. Why why is um, any institution willing to pay you 20% for cash, essentially. Right. Um, why, why is the bank paying you a half a percent? And if you convert your dollars to UST and put it in the, the we'll call it the anchor savings account instead of like a Bank of America Wells Fargo savings account, you get 20% rather than a half a percent. And, and because of that, most of the people that were buying UST were staking it and trying to earn this 20%. But as you said, it was a teaser rate. And they, they passed a new uh, proposal, I think it's called Proposal 20, back in March. That's and right. that said that that rate wasn't going to stay there. That rate was going to go down. And subsequently, when that rate started to drop, people started pulling their money out of UST. Yeah, so I'll pull up the slide that shows a little bit of, of this. And so the, the chart on the left here shows the, the top line is the deposits of UST and Anchor um, compared to, uh, to the loans outstanding. And as you can see, over the course of the last several months, the deposits into Anchor you know, kept going up and up and up and then just fell off the face of the earth um, people just started pulling their money out of, of anchor um, once they realized that that interest rate was going to go down. So there was another element we didn't discuss with this, which is that uh, as part of this protocol, the uh, it was called the Luna, I think it's called the Luna Foundation Guard, LFG. That's right, LFG. LFG, they were going to buy about $10 billion worth of Bitcoin. I think at the time this happened, they had bought about $2.3 billion or so. And the idea behind right. it was that that was also part of their reserves. But what ended up happening, well, I think we should take a step back and, and also talk about how this swapping works because the, the Bitcoin plays a role there. So the idea was 
that if UST ever fell below a dollar, let's say UST fell to about 90 cents, then investors- Let's say 98 cents, because that's what initially happened. Sure, sure. So if it, but if it falls below a dollar, let's say 98 cents, then investors are going to come in and they're going to buy a ton of UST at 98 cents, knowing that they can cash that in for $1 of Luna. So right. you're essentially buying an ass, you're buying something for 98 cents and knowing that you can immediately swap it for something worth a dollar. And even that, that small, that small margin is enough to attract a significant number of investors. And it's also enough to attract very large investors who, well, that was my, yeah, the comment I was going to say is that it, it, in order for an arbitrage like that to be profitable, if you're talking about a two cent difference, it requires a pretty you know substantial investment for it to be a meaningful return for anybody. Exactly. And then um, the opposite was also true, which was that if for some reason UST was trading above a dollar, then you could swap $1 of Luna. Let's say UST was trading at $1 and two cents. Then you could swap $1 of Luna for $1.02 of UST. And make two and, cents. And, right. And the idea and was is that these two forces working together, it's a bit of game theory here too. These two forces working together would help keep the value of UST right at about $1. Essentially right. And the, the what... And the one additional point that's that's also important is the burning of the token on the other side. Correct. So if you swap UST for Luna, that UST is destroyed. Correct. And is out of circulation and mm -hmm. vice versa. If you swap Luna for UST, then those Luna coins get destroyed. Right. And that, to my understanding, is where Bitcoin, the Bitcoin reserves come in, which is that if this system doesn't quite work, where market forces are keeping that stable coin right at a dollar, then they have these reserves and those reserves, 2.3 billion is a lot of money, would come in and purchase and rebalance wherever it needs to be rebalanced. So they have this 2.3 billion that they can use to either right, buy more Luna or yeah. more UST, right? Yeah, they could sell some Bitcoin and put it into whichever whichever side of that equation needed to be rebalanced. Right. So in other words, if the if the market players are not keeping UST right at a dollar, they had this reserve fund to come in and and purchase whatever needed to be done in order to stabilize it right at a dollar. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, uh, this all fell apart. Right. So as the uh, UST started to lose its peg last week, um, the, the, the price kept falling because the amount of Luna in circulation um, absolutely ballooned and the UST in circulation uh, got destroyed. So if you look at the graph on the right, um, you can see that you know on top you have UST quantity in circulation and on the bottom is Luna in circulation. I, I believe I saw that that Luna's circulation went from uh, 343 million to 32 billion between May 8th and May 12th. 
Yeah, I didn't think I'd read that right when I read it. It was such a shocking <laughs> number. And there's also a, another element, which is I believe that only $100 million worth of Luna could be destroyed in any 24-hour period. So as people started, I'm sorry, uh, only $100 million of uh, UST could be destroyed in any 24-hour period. So yeah, that's right. As, they could, yeah, they couldn't keep up. Right. They couldn't keep up and it went into essentially a death spiral. Mm -hmm. So, and then of course, unfortunately, because of this incident, 80,000 Bitcoin were, were sold. I'm assuming at market rate, um, by the Luna guard foundation, which dropped the price of Bitcoin very significantly. This is a, a, a pretty epic, sales event 80,000 bitcoins a lot of bitcoin and who knows how many how many other margin calls etc or, or liquidations were triggered by that that sudden movement down uh, from 30,000 yeah, and then on top of that there are some other you know factors that I don't think anybody has all of the information on right now in terms of some people are saying that there was um, there were some coordinated attacks, so to speak, mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. of folks trying to um, to basically drive the price of Bitcoin down by doing this, so that they you know they had short positions in Bitcoin, or that there were um, you know deals being made between market makers and and Terra in order to um, try to to stabilize this, and so those were kind of you know backroom deals, um, all of that stuff that I'm sure it may or may not come out at some point, but there was a lot of a lot of moving parts that um, that caused a lot of people to lose a lot of money. Exactly, and and then I also think that if you're you know going back to the three different types of stable coins. Because there, there, there are some real use cases, I think, for some of the, particularly the fiat-backed stable coins. Like, I, I really don't think that they are, I really don't think that they are a terrible idea. I mean, there are fifteen to 20,000 cryptocurrencies. 99.9% .9 of them are complete garbage. I hate to burst everyone's bubble, but almost all of them are really terrible and they have no use. Uh, but a, a stable coin that's backed by, by dollars, essentially, by the, the, the actual underlying asset does have a use because you're able to avoid, you're able to keep your money in what I'm going to call the crypto space rather than going back and forth between legacy financial institutions. Right. Now, look, okay, it's, it, it's the same, you know, it's a, it's a Chuck E. Cheese token in the, in the same sense. You go to Chuck E. Cheese, you put a, you put $20 in the machine, you get 20 tokens. It's still worth $20. It's, it, it's the same basic idea. Exactly. And then when you go to the cryptocurrency backed stable coins, well, now you've introduced a new level of risk because the cryptocurrency that is backing it is going to have a significant amount of volatility regardless of what coin is backing it, which is the reason why you have to have uh, much more reserves than you would have for a fiat backed coin because for a fiat backed stable coin, if you have one-to-one -one in reserve, you're in great shape. Mm -hmm. For, a, let's say, a crypto-backed coin, you may need 2x, 3x, or 4x in reserve to allow for the fluctuation in price of the crypto asset. 
And then when you get into algorithmic stable coins, especially those that pay 20%, <laughs> I think most people should see like some really significant warning signs because, you know, there's a, there's an old saying if it's, and it's, it's kind of a cliche, but if it's too good, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And 20% interest on your money for, for what's considered kind of a no risk kind of asset where you just, it's your assets not supposed to go up in value. So 20% on a, right. a savings account, you have to ask a lot of questions. Where's this 20% coming from and how safe is this money? And I mean, even if it's 10 or 15%, you're still talking about, you know, that's compared to, like you said, you're lucky to get a half a percent, 50 basis points in a savings account at a, at a bank. Right. And, and then when you think about what the algorithmic stable coins are, is that you have these two assets, which is UST, I'm going to consider that an asset, and, and the other one's Luna. But th neither one of them, well, let me put it this way, either one of them could go to zero in an instant. There's nothing stopping either one of them from going to zero at a moment's notice. And that's essentially what happened here. I mean, I think Luna right now, I don't, I don't keep up with the price, but I know it's trading for a fraction of a penny. It's basically at zero. It's basically at zero. It's and, and its high was, I think its high was 116 or so. And I think at the yep. beginning of the year, do you know what it was? Um, I know it was at like around, I want to say it was around 60 when all this started to happen. Yeah, I thought it may have been 80. I'm not, not sure, but it's in it that was, same range. So, you know, I think that a lot of people got hurt here. I mean, there were, there were, it was over a billion dollars involved here. I don't know the exact number, yeah. but I know a lot people of people, a lot of people got really hurt. And, and that does lead us to, I think, a number of lessons from this. One is that Bitcoin is not, Bitcoin is not crypto. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. It's, it's a unique asset. It's not like anything else in the crypto space. I know it gets lumped in there. And I also know this is one of your pet peeves that Bitcoin is not crypto. Yes. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. And crypto is a totally different world. It's, it's there. That's a long discussion of what the difference is between Bitcoin and crypto. But, but this did impact Bitcoin and it did impact the entire space, which is why we're discussing it. And, and I think that in some ways, depending on how you look at it, this is a pretty good testament to Bitcoin, meaning you had an enormous amount of Bitcoin that was sold unexpectedly, somewhat violently, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And Bitcoin's still around 30,000 a coin. So it, it took an enormous, Bitcoin took a, a really kind of unique and unexpected beating out of nowhere where you had market forces that had nothing to do with Bitcoin and it held up pretty good. I think it's kind of impressive. I I'm totally impressed by it. I think that um, it was a sign that Bitcoin really is anti-fragile. I mean, it is um, able to withstand a lot of pressure. Um, you know, there could have been, uh, much, much more blood in the streets with Bitcoin um, if it wasn't as strong as it is. And I, I think that, that that's really a testament to, to the asset itself.
Well, clearly, once it hit, you know, there are certain levels in the 20s, 27, 28, 29, where buyers were coming in. I mean, every transaction has to have a buyer and a seller. And, and realistically, sure. there were buyers there. And that leads us to, I think, a bit of the, the next analysis that we did, which was taking a look at all of the FANG stocks. Here, I'm going to pull that, put that pull up. That up. So, uh, the FANG stocks are Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, Netflix, and Google. I also added into this uh, Microsoft and NVIDIA. NVIDIA, and is company, NVIDIA is a company that I looked at that I, I thought should have been in that category maybe around 2018, 2019. It, it failed just a bit for me, but... I just was curious how it performed because it had been on my radar before. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that when we look at the FANG stocks and include in that uh, Microsoft and NVIDIA and the NASDAQ, it looks like Bitcoin is the best performing asset of the group year to date. Mm -hmm. So if we consider that before this, Bitcoin would have been even higher. I don't know what the math would have been, but maybe we would have seen Bitcoin down 6%, 7% for the year. And when you look at these other companies, you know, Apple, uh, which is, you know, arguably one of the strongest companies in the world. Well, it's definitely one of the strongest companies in the world, arguably the strongest company in the world. Um, it, it was down almost 21% year to date. And uh, the worst performing of that, which was a, a stock that's been, you know, just really an exceptional well, Netflix, performer yeah. the past 10 years, mm -hmm. Netflix down 70, almost 71%. It's quite amazing. So in this group, I was surprised to see Bitcoin perform as well as it did. And then we can also see, you know, what were the best performers over the past year? And surprisingly, NVIDIA was the best performer and Bitcoin is kind of in the middle of the pack. Although when we look at the one-year performance for NASDAQ and the one-year performance for Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin has essentially over twice the loss that yeah, the NASDAQ has. However, um, you know, I, I think that this chart and, and these numbers once again are another testament to Bitcoin's value because you know, there's in the same way that there's nothing stopping like UST and Terra from going to zero, there are some, there, there really isn't a backstop from stopping Bitcoin from going to zero. If you take a company like Netflix, Netflix has assets, they have book value, they, they can sell off things they have. They're not technically worth zero. Sure. So, given that you're in a, an extremely challenging environment and given that you're seeing an enormous sell-off in the equities markets, um, I think it's really extraordinary how well Bitcoin has held up, especially if you understand that, that it doesn't have any book value or, or any other underlying assets. Absolutely. There is, uh, the, the market has uh, really, in my opinion, supported the idea that, that, this is a important technology. It's an important platform. Um, and like you said, it could have been a lot worse. Mm -hmm. Now I've, 
I know we've received a, a lot of questions, which is <laughs> over the past, uh, uh, the past two weeks is what's going on Bitcoin? What happened to Bitcoin? <laughs> like people are, people are considering whether it is the, um, the asset they thought it was. And I'd like to share my explanation of what I think is going on with Bitcoin and why, why the price is doing what it's doing. So I think that to me, Bitcoin, and by, by the way, this is not investment advice. We do not give out investment advice. Uh, we're not advocating for anything. We just like to have a discussion about these topics. So to me, Bitcoin is a risk off asset, meaning you put your money in Bitcoin because you don't want risk. And that may seem a bit strange to some people, but I put it more in the gold, silver. It's a commodity. I put it in the commodities mm-hmm. basket. And so while I view Bitcoin as being more of a safe haven and a risk off asset, it's really clear that the rest of the market and, and most of the players, especially particularly retail, do not view Bitcoin as a risk off asset, but actually a risk on asset. And for that reason, it tends to be correlated fairly significantly with the NASDAQ and I also think with the, the FANG stocks. And one of us is right. I mean, either, either Bitcoin is a risk-off asset or it's, or it's a risk-on asset. But to me, I think that – I think a lot of people don't really understand Bitcoin. Bitcoin is really, really hard to understand. It takes a long time. It takes hundreds of hours, if not a 1,000 hours to understand. And so for people who don't understand it, at first glance, it looks like a risk on asset. It just looks like uh, a, a particularly speculative investment. Yeah, like a tech stock or, or like you said, like the NASDAQ, which is a basket of tech stocks, essentially. And it, it does seem to uh, correlate with that for the time being. And, you know, we, we've seen a few instances of where it's been less correlated but uh but even just this past week when uh when it ran back up into the into the mid 30s that was really tracking with with a you know a good day in the stock market yeah and i I don't know when it's going to come back or i don't know when it's going to come around that people actually view bitcoin as a risk-off asset and it's also possible i'm wrong that it's not but if you understand the mechanics of it understand what it really is it's hard to argue it's anything but a risk-off asset I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Or... No, I, I agree. I think that I, I think that there is um, the idea that it is a store of value um, that that allows you to keep your uh, your value for a long period of time. I think over time that will come to fruition. I think that it's hard to um, argue that you've got a an asset that once kind of the price discovery of it is over, um, there's no leakage in it. There's no, um, there's really no way for you to look at Bitcoin as anything other than an ability to take um, value that you own and stick it somewhere and keep it there forever. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that gold has had value, I think there are two reasons that gold has had value. One, it's got the highest stock-to-flow ratio of any commodity on the planet. 
I think stock to flow ratio is around 70. And the stock to flow ratio for people who don't know is you take the amount of supply on hand and you divide it by the new supply that you're able to produce each year. So if you were to take like potatoes, we probably have about a year's worth of potatoes on the planet and we grow about a year's worth of potatoes every year. So potatoes would have a stock to flow of one. One. And gold, gold is almost impossible to destroy. And so essentially every every bit of gold that's ever been mined is still on the planet. And we we produce or we mine about 170th each year of compared to the current supply of gold that's there. Mm-hmm. And the other reason that gold has value is because it takes a lot of effort and energy and work to get it out of the ground. Gold mining is not free. It no. takes work. And so what you're essentially doing is you're trading in, let's just say you're for your job, you, uh, you dig ditches, a really difficult job. And you're working really, really hard. 40 hours a week, you're breaking your back to dig these ditches. Well, your money should also represent something that's very difficult to come by. You're storing all of your energy and all of your work in some kind of money. So historically, money have been things that were extremely difficult to get. Even before gold, they were using very rare things, mm-hmm. you know, teeth or whatever kind of things people could get their hands on, gold, uh, glass beads. Depends on the, the place, limestone. So gold is really storing your energy and your work. And, and the reason it has value is because it's very, very difficult to produce more gold. Now, the, the opposite is true with fiat money. To If you have, let's just say, for argument's sake, a, a billion dollars in fiat dollars, and you want to create another billion dollars in fiat dollars, you pretty much can press a couple buttons on a computer, and all of a sudden you've got $2 billion. It doesn't take extra work. If you've got a thousand pounds of gold and you want to get another thousand pounds of gold, it's going to take an enormous amount of work to get that out of the ground. It's going to be very expensive. It actually holds value. And and Bitcoin has a similar thing there where the proof of work of Bitcoin, and we should probably get into that in a different episode, but I was just thinking about this earlier today, the similarities there and how every Bitcoin that's mined took an enormous amount of work to be mined. I mean, tens of energy, yeah, hundreds of thousands of computers and enormous amount of energy. And that's why it is a commodity like that. And that's why it can be a good store of value. So um, just a random thought that I was having earlier today, I kind of had a little epiphany as far as, you know, how you work and you, you put time and effort into something and you want to, preserve that energy and that effort into something that can't just be easily counterfeited like fiat currency. And so we'll see. And so, you know, when people ask me, you know, what's going on with the price of Bitcoin? Well, my answer is the rest of the world doesn't see what other people see for the, for the Bitcoiners, the people who have really spent time studying this and, and, and have their, their opinion or their view on what it will be. Um, very, very few people understand that. Now, if you go to like a Bitcoin conference somewhere, uh, most of the people in the room will understand that. I think most of the people in the room would be somewhat like-minded. But the general public does not understand Bitcoin. And so 
for the people that do understand it, they're just kind of there first. And, and we see this with investing everywhere. There are people that, I was talking to a friend of mine today, and he was telling me that he went to lunch with a stockbroker friend of his, had been their stockbroker for their family for like 30 years, like his dad was using him as a stockbroker. And the day that Facebook came out, he said, I want to buy Facebook. And the stockbroker told him, no, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't even know if I can get my hands on it. And he didn't buy it. And so the, my friend saw something that the stockbroker didn't see. And this is what we get investing all the time. Some people see things before others. So when people say, what's going on with Bitcoin? My simple answer is that people don't really understand it. And they don't really understand that it's, it's, it should be viewed as a risk-off asset not as a risk on asset. And yeah, and, and one one thing um related to that and and back to your gold example um is that you know you, you do hear comparisons to gold. I think there are some very good comparisons to gold as it relates to Bitcoin in terms of the type of asset and 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 the idea that it, it does require a lot of energy and effort to mine gold. Um, just in the same way that it requires energy to mine Bitcoin. Um, what I think one of the key differences is, and I think over time this will become uh, more of a factor, is that with gold, if the price of gold starts to go up, um, all you, you, the gold mining companies just deploy more miners and they work faster and harder to get more gold out of the ground faster. Um, and so, so that they can sell it at the higher price. Well, Bitcoin solves that problem, but with its difficulty adjustment and with the fact that you, no matter what you do, there are only going to be a block closed every 10 minutes. There's only going to be new Bitcoins coming into the into circulation every 10 minutes. And so even if the price of Bitcoin were to you know spike up, you can't make more quickly so that you can sell it on the market right away. Um, and you can do that with gold. So in my opinion, that's one of the key advantages of Bitcoin over gold, aside from the, you know, some of the clear advantages that Bitcoin has in terms of portability and, and the self-auditing blockchain and all that, mm. that kind of stuff. But, um, but I think that that over time will really kind of cement it as something that's a better alternative to gold. Yeah, and, I, and and all the, I agree with all that, but I, I and I think that if I was going to summarize, you know, why is Bitcoin trading at twenty nine thousand? Why isn't it trading at two hundred ninety thousand? And my simple answer is, people don't really understand it. The world doesn't really understand Bitcoin. And and, and I would go even a step further and say that a lot of people who know about it only know about it because they hear negative things about it. So there is, uh, you know, there's a lot of, of FUD in, in, the, in the world around Bitcoin. And so, um, you know, you'll hear the it's too volatile. You hear the, uh, the climate change argument, all of these things that um, if you understand it, you realize that they're not really valid arguments against Bitcoin. And in some cases, especially with the, uh, with the ESG side of things, uh, Bitcoin is actually, I think, potentially one of the few things that can actually solve um, environmental and energy. It is, and and you know, it's the it's it's amazing how many discussions you and I have had with people who claim that they understand what Bitcoin is. And then you have a discussion and they're just repeating what someone else told them, repeating what they read on 
some some website or some you know news aggregate or whatever it is and they really are just parroting what's there they haven't put thought into it but i think when we look at this week in particular it's resiliency in light of what happened with with it being caught up in this ust luna scandal debacle and then you look at it also in relation to essentially what i'm going to consider the best stocks on the NASDAQ, I mean, these are the assets you wanted to own for the past 10 to 12 years. Nothing outperformed these, more or less. Yeah. I mean, these are essentially almost tech monopolies, and there's dominant, dominant players. And you see how it, how it did in relation to those. I mean, I'll tell you this, that if you were to cash out of everything on December 31st, 2021, and you had a crystal ball that would tell you what to do with it, where to put your money, based on this group that's there, for middle of May, so five, was it four and a half months later, mm-hmm. right? If you had that crystal ball, what you would have chosen is Bitcoin because it's performed better than any of those other assets since December 31st, 2021. Or you could say it's lost the least, but yes. It's lost the least, but, and that is something- Investments people, go up and down. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, it's not that. I mean, there's- Given the current environment, I think it's unrealistic to think that it's going to spike in price, that it's going to go up. Now, I think it should because I consider it to be a risk-off asset that you know this is where you put your money when you want it to be more safe. But the reality is that that is not, uh, that is not the situation right now. So, right. all right. Well, let's move um, on quickly to some of the, the, the news for the week. Yeah, I think the uh, the theme on uh, our next few slides that we'll run through quickly really uh, have to do with spending Bitcoin. Um, you know, I think there is a another one of these things you hear all the time for uh, those that that are not in favor of Bitcoin. Say, oh well, you can't spend it. it nobody buys groceries with Bitcoin. It's too slow. It's too expensive. Whatever it is. Um, but what you're starting to see is a lot of different. Um, types of, of organizations, institutions that are now accepting Bitcoin um, as payment or, you know, and, and maybe other cryptocurrencies as well, but, but Bitcoin included. Um, and so here we uh, Bentley University, which is a small, uh, I think, business oriented school in Massachusetts is now accepting cryptocurrency for their tuition payments, um, which. Why, why do you think they're doing that? What's your guess on why they're doing that? Well, I'm not sure. I don't know a ton about the school. But the one thing I do know is that it is a very business-focused educational institution, meaning that if you go there, you're getting some sort of a business degree. And so maybe because of the popularity of Bitcoin and crypto in general, um, you you see people that are interested in that space that maybe have a history of you know dealing with with different cryptocurrencies wanting to get a degree from Bentley and maybe the money that they own happens to be in the form of, uh, of some form of digital money. And, and they figured that if they accepted that as payment, they might attract more students. Yeah. I don't know what their actual reason is, but I could argue that why wouldn't you take it? What, what you know, let's just, just kind of focus more on Bitcoin, but if you own a business, why wouldn't you take Bitcoin? You can always convert it to whatever fiat currency you want almost instantly. 
It's not difficult to get the payment rail set up. There, there are lots of them out there. Um, and so I think because of this, because there's almost no reason to not do it, we're going to see more and more institutions starting to do this. And I do think that 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 places accepting Bitcoin is is tied into Bitcoin's value proposition. You know, I don't think Bentley University takes gold. Right. I don't think I could pay my tuition in gold because that would be difficult for them to deal with. I mean, that that takes some... Yeah. It's a very complicated thing to take gold. You have to make sure it's real. You have to weigh it, get the exact amount. It's difficult. Um, yeah, I don't think you can just drop a bag of coins off at the bursar's office and, you know, no. go to class. <laughs> no, no. But, but it's not difficult to... To send Bitcoin, it's not difficult to receive Bitcoin in that exact amount. If you don't want to hold it in Bitcoin, you can just easily convert to fiat. And and I, what we talked about in our last episode is like how each of these things is a step, or what I like to say is like another drop of water in a big bucket, a really big bucket, mm -hmm. maybe a fifty gallon drum. And you need a lot of these little drips. But what we're starting to see, and we're going to see some of the other places that are accepting it, is more and more significant institutions just starting to accept it to the point where it doesn't even seem particularly crazy anymore. And I do think that this is great for Bitcoin's adoption. And I do think it's great for Bitcoin's value. Agree. Um, all right, let's go to the next one. So the world's largest family owned private bank, uh, which I believe is Liechtenstein in Europe, um, is now offering uh, Bitcoin to their clients. That's extraordinary. All right, when I, and I know I knew about this article before, and I, I'm just thinking it over right now. That's really kind of extraordinary. If you think and, and by the way, w w the, the, when you say the world's largest family-owned private bank, I believe they have about $285 billion assets under management. Yes, and that's, that's, I, I'm guessing that's an institution that moves very, very slowly. That's an institution that doesn't like a lot of change. That's an institution that doesn't just jump on the latest thing. So that's great. All right, let's keep rolling. It also um, means there's demand from their customers, most likely. For sure. Yeah, people were asking for it, I'm sure. Um, all right, the Weiler Automotive Group, uh, they own 23 dealerships in three states in the Midwest, like uh, Kentucky, Ohio, and Indiana, um, have announced that they are uh, putting the ability to buy cars using cryptocurrency into some of their dealerships. I believe this is the AutoNation group. I might be wrong, but I believe it's the AutoNation group. And so uh, you're going to see a lot of cars being purchased with Bitcoin. I have a friend who runs a car dealership, and he wanted to be the first a couple of years ago. And his uh, <laughs> the guy who owned the dealership said no. Yeah. Well. Again, it's just, you know, I, I think this is a... a function of customer demand people probably come in and they're looking at a car and they say god i wish i could pay with my bitcoin instead of having to sell my bitcoin to buy the car and enough people say it and enough salespeople talk to the finance manager about it and next thing you know it's uh it's set up you know so and once again it's the same it's a similar situation the payment rails are there they're easy it's not a difficult thing to accept it um there are almost no transaction fees for the dealership and there's no financial risk for the dealership. Right. Right. They're so paid. I think you can go to a dealership and stroke a check 
for a car, like a non-cashier's check for sure. a car. Actually, I know you can. Um, and so there's a risk there that those checks will bounce. I guarantee you there's been a time someone, someone wrote a check for a $100,000 car and the check didn't clear. And they drove off a lot with it. It gets repossessed, of course. But there is a financial risk to, to auto dealerships just taking regular regular checks. And I know some dealerships let you pay with a credit card. I don't know if they charge you a an additional fee or not for the um, the credit card processing fees. But once again, there's no reason for them not to accept it. And when you start talking about the, the value proposition and what can you do with it, these are all just examples of large institutions realizing that Bitcoin has real value. It's not just magic internet money. Yeah. Well, one thing I, that I think would be interesting, and I don't know the answer to the question, I just kind of thought of it, is that, you know, which, first of all, which cryptocurrencies are they accepting other than Bitcoin? Um, but in addition to that, how are they managing that the the volatility and the price of these things? So, you know, if somebody comes in and the price of Bitcoin is $30,000 and they buy a $30,000 car for one Bitcoin, um, you know, there is a chance that by the time they sign the paperwork, it could be 29,000 or 32,000. And so, you know, I think that the question is, are they holding the cryptocurrencies on their balance sheets? Um, are they immediately converting it to fiat? So they're, you know, minimizing that volatility. I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to see how some of these, uh, these, you know, merchants that are taking uh, Bitcoin or other crypto for larger purchases are are weathering that. I don't know. I think it probably ranges depending on <clears throat> who's involved with it. I think some would probably want to put on their balance sheet. I think others are going to probably use some of the services that instantly convert it to fiat. They're just using those payment rails. Mm -hmm. And I also know that in Portugal... Uh, the first house in Portugal was sold for three Bitcoin over the past two mm -hmm. weeks. So you've had people buying a house in Portugal. You've got the largest family-owned private bank, which you said was in Liechtenstein. Mm -hmm. They're going to be um, offering Bitcoin. So you can buy a house and a car, and you can get it from a uh, a private bank that doesn't make a lot of changes. And also... Uh, I know that um, the Spanish soccer club, Espanol, is accepting uh, Bitcoin for – it's actually Bitcoin and, and, and other cryptocurrencies uh, for tickets and merchandise and all kinds of things like that. So it's just another step in this adoption. And I think we're almost getting to the point where maybe this isn't such big news anymore that – the next person, the next person, the next person is accepting it because we're seeing this week after week, just more and more places where it is being adopted. Yeah, it's um, it, it seems like every day there's there's some sort of announcement, and I agree. At some point, they're not really worthy of announcement. They're just it's just natural organic adoption. I still personally like to know every new place where it's well, every new oh, for sure. place where it's being adopted. I think all of it uh, adds to this bigger puzzle. Yeah, and then this was the last one. Um, this was this one uh, just came out in the last day or so. Um, that there, uh, Coin Corner has this product called the Bolt Card, 
um, which is a uh, it's a contact it, it uses NFC technology. So um, just like you would tap a credit card on a on a POS terminal, um, you know this is a similar type of setup where you'll uh, tap the card onto. I believe a smartphone that's got software on it and it, it allows you to pay for, um, for items at retail using, using lightning as the payment rails. Yeah. I, what I thought was really neat about this when I saw it is that this paying this way is, is extremely non-technical. Right. So using a typical lightning wallet, you're going to scan a QR code, which is extremely simple, but you're still using a device. You're still scanning something. There's a process to it where this is much like using a traditional credit card, even though you're using the lightning network. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's anyone who's ever used a credit card could in theory use this. Um, I think they, I, I, you know, this one, I wasn't, once I looked into it, I wasn't quite as excited about it as, as when I initially saw this, you know, the headline. Um, but again, this is a step towards adoption. I don't know that, you know, there are merchants that are running out to put a bolt card reader in their store. Um, I, you know, for the sake of coin corner, I hope that lots of people do. And I think for merchants, um, there's certainly, an appeal to have the ability to accept a, 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 you know, cashless payment that doesn't really cost anything. So I think merchants overall will be willing to, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be really happy to save that 3% fee. Um, and so I think that it's got, you know, great potential. Um, I think there's still things to work out there in terms of, you know, I, I don't think you can connect that card to, you know, for example, a, um, a lightning note on tour where you're able to spend your lightning sats, um, you know, anonymously, that kind of thing. I think, you know, some of those things, as far as the actual users that are, you know, more hardcore Bitcoiners, um, they're going to want to see that type of ability um, in terms of overall adoption of Bitcoin. But again, I think it's just really cool that now you've got another uh, alternative in the market. I mean, obviously, you know, what strike is doing, um, is, is another example of this type of thing where you're just using lightning as the payment rails to be able to pay for anything in any currency anywhere. Um, and it's, it's really pretty extraordinary that you've got, um, this, uh, this technology that's, you know, evolving this fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, what, what I thought was interesting about this Part of it was that you're using like what looks like a traditional credit card and it's the same shape and size as, as a traditional credit card. It does not have a magnetic stripe on it. It does not use the Visa, MasterCard, or American Express network. But what I thought was interesting about this is that it uses NFC, near-field mm-hmm. communications. And you know all your smartphones have NFC built into it. And so I, I think that if you kind of look out a bit and you say, okay, what's it going to be like to pay using the Lightning Network five years from now. I can imagine something where instead of using this QR code and scanning QR codes, you're just going to go to a whatever point of sale terminal. You'll put your phone near it or your watch near it. Yep. And it will just pay it because that's essentially what we're doing here. Or 
you could do something where you put your phone near it and maybe the the total for the transaction pops up on your phone and then mm-hmm. you prove it. Maybe it's even wants to use like face ID. I mean, some people will come up with security ideas, but I, I think that the big thing that comes out of this is a transaction on the lightning network, not using a QR code and not using uh, your lightning address, which is very confusing for people. Sure. All right. So it's just a very easy, quick payment technology. You touch a card to something, you're done. You don't line up a camera. You don't have to do anything else. And this NFC technology, I, I think, is going to move. It's going to be used on the Lightning Network, whether it's on your phone, whether it's on your watch. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't and think the card is really going to survive, but I like the idea of, of using NFC. But the card is just a mechanism. You could have the same mm-hmm. thing, like you said, with any NFC-enabled device. Um, one thing I was also going to mention that is somewhat of a correction from a prior episode is that um, when you talk about you know these types of payments, um, you're basically talking about debit card transactions. You're talking about you know spending cash that you actually have, not um, not putting a charge on a card that you're going to pay off later, and. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talked about that initially after the Bitcoin conference, it, as it related to lightning, um, you know, I, I was a little skeptical about that piece of it because of the idea of, you know, are people really going to be willing to give up their credit cards that they don't have to have the money sitting somewhere to make a payment. And, you know, after looking into it, it turns out that two thirds of all of the card payments um, are debit card transactions. So you're talking about a large percentage a large majority of uh, card transactions that are going, you know, over the existing Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Discover networks um, that could easily go on to a virtually free network for the merchant. A lot of change coming for sure. Just a lot of change coming. It doesn't happen overnight, but there is, you can look out in the horizon and see that things are going to look quite a bit different in five years and radically different in 10 years. Absolutely. In my opinion. So Matt, with that, can you tell people how to find us? Absolutely. You can come to our website, btcbutlers.com, on Twitter, at btcbutlers. Our DMs are open there. You can email us at info at btcbutlers.com. And um, if you enjoyed this uh, podcast, please subscribe on YouTube. Give us a like uh, on your various podcast uh, platforms, whether that's Apple, Spotify, whatever, we're all there. And uh, we would uh, love to hear from you. We'd love to uh, to have you um, reach out to us with any questions. And uh, as always, Bitcoin Butlers is here to help you implement Bitcoin best practices, uh, whether that's buying, uh, coming up with a storage plan, um, and uh, most importantly, our sovereign inheritance planning process that allows you to put an inheritance plan in place uh, for your heirs to be able to access your Bitcoin and other digital assets and other analog assets after you've passed away. Um, we can help with any of that. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks. All right, Matt. Thank you very much. Until next time. Have a good one. You too.